Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's hard to believe that we are in this last chapter of this study through the book of Matthew that we started almost uh, three years ago. Uh, here as we've been working through this passage of Scripture in each consecutive week building upon the other. And so we find here now in Matthew chapter 28 that we're really reaching the, the, the pivotal moment for Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew has been writing this book in an effort to convince a Jewish audience of the truthfulness of who Jesus is, not just as a great person or a great teacher, but as the very Son of God. As the promised Messiah, the one who God had foretold for thousands of years uh, throughout the Old Testament, the one for whom the Jewish people had longed and pleaded and begged for, he had arrived upon the scene. And and Matthew here is attempting all throughout this gospel by relating fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy to point to a Jewish audience the truth of who Jesus is. And really, this final chapter is the ultimate uh, climax of all of these things. It's all coming to a head in Matthew's gospel. of Now he's like, this is what we've all been waiting for. That Jesus is not just a man who is a great teacher who died and was buried and who still remains in the grave, but that He is truly the Son of God and demonstrated by the fact that He has risen from the dead. If you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be reading the first 10 verses. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. You can be seated. What we find in this passage this morning really is the true foundation of the Christian faith. It is the text that relates to us not the exact moment of Jesus' resurrection. There's nowhere in the Scripture that describes to us the exact moment of the resurrection. We just see the effect of it afterwards. That as they get there, the tomb is empty. Jesus is gone. He has been raised from the dead. And it's inside of this belief, it's inside of this sure fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that everything that we believe as Christians is built and founded upon. It is the true foundation of our faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is what it's all about. If if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we have no hope as Christians. And this is what Paul goes on to say in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Brothers and sisters, our faith hinges upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not just enough that Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment for sins. If he did not rise from the dead, we would have no hope in having forgiveness. Jesus Christ would have just been another man who came and gathered a following of people together and, and lived a ministry and a life where people followed after him and who died and his buried. And there have been countless numbers of men who have done just that. Claim to do great things, claim to do wondrous things, but death held them in the grave. But death could not hold Jesus in the grave because he was no just ordinary man. He was the very Son of God, the promised Messiah. And Paul relates here over and over to us again there in 1 Corinthians that without the hope of the resurrection, we have no hope. It is because Jesus has been raised from the dead that we know that we have forgiveness of sins because it was by his very resurrection that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And by his resurrection, God has said, and I accept the payment. It was enough. And now we have this great hope that because Christ has been dead and buried and has been raised from the dead, that we can have forgiveness of sins and that we can have eternal life. So we can't underestimate the importance of this chapter here in Matthew chapter 28 because this is everything again that I said that Matthew's been pointing to. He's been pointing to how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And now by Jesus rising from the dead, he is putting a firm, clear picture to us all that Jesus truly was the Messiah. I want you to notice just a couple of things as we begin there in verse 1. It says, now after the Sabbath... As it began to dawn to the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now we know that the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday. It was the last day of the week. It was the day that they worshipped and gathered together. They did that because of how the Scripture has been laid out, that Jesus rested on the seventh day, that He set aside a day for rest. And so the Jewish people all throughout their years and history had worshipped on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day of the week. And they really counted all the other days of the week, even though it was the last day of the week, they counted all others' days after that, which is the reason why Matthew says it was the, the, the first day of the week after the, uh, they, would, they would continue to count it from the days from the Sabbath, continuing through the week. So this is sometime really early on Sunday morning in our calendar. And Mary Magdalene, it says, and the other Mary came to look at the grave Now, Matthew here only points out two of the women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, from the other gospel writers, we know that not only was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary there, but also Salome, who is the the mother of James and John and Joanna. There were multiple women here. Then each gospel writer points these out in different ways to tell us about these women who came here very early on this morning to come to the Lord's grave. 
So I want you to picture this in a moment. As they leave out to go to the grave, it's no doubt dark still outside. They get up early to get there, so they have work to do. They're going to prepare Jesus' body. It had, almost, it had already been uh, temporarily prepared, but the process for uh, Jewish burial was they would continue to wrap this body in, in this salve and in these linings to keep the decay process slowed down as much as possible as they could in the primitive times that they were doing these things. So they're going back to the tomb to take oils and spices and all the other things for a proper burial because they loved their master. They love Jesus. They had such hope and such trust in Him, and their hearts are grieved in this moment. You can almost even imagine as they're walking to the tomb, just probably the quietness along the way. Scripture doesn't tell us this, but you know what it's like when you've lost a loved one. You know what it's like when you've lost someone you care so deeply about, and and when you're going to have to take care of something. You're going to the funeral home. You're going to the funeral itself. There's just this quietness that comes because they're sorrowful. They're brokenhearted because they had hoped and trusted in everything that Christ had promised them, but yet they feel disappointed because he, he had promised all of these things and he had told them all of these things about what they were going to do and, and, and what God was going to do, but then he died. They, they had seen him hanging on the cross. They had seen his body come off of the cross. They had seen his body, chapter 27 tells us, they had seen his body. They'd been there when his body was placed into the tomb and the stone was rolled over the grave. Can you imagine at that moment when the stone was first rolled, that really was probably the ultimate kind of nail in the coffin for them to say, this is over. It's done. But what we see here is that their love for Jesus was not superficial. They didn't just love Jesus in the time in which he was alive. And then after he was gone, they say, well, we'll we go on to the next and better thing. We'll go on to something else. We'll find somebody else to follow, somebody else to give our lives to. No, their love for Jesus was so great that even though he was died and even though they were sorrowful and even though they had lost hope, they were still going back to the tomb to fulfill their obedience to their master, to prepare his body there in the grave. Now, as we read through the gospel account this morning, about this resurrection, if you read the other parallel Gospels in Mark and Luke and John, you're going to notice that there's some different perspectives that happen here. And oftentimes people try to point to the different perspectives of of the way that each of these writers describe the account to point these things out as contradictions. But they're not contradictions. You have to understand that each one of these gentlemen is writing this book from their own perspective. I've used this example before, but if all of us were to go outside and we're standing outside of, of the church here on a Sunday morning, and all of a sudden, from one direction comes an ice cream truck, and from the other direction comes a semi-trailer, and they combine in the middle, and they have an accident, and then a reporter shows up, and they begin to go around and ask, you know, what, what happened here? What, 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 what took place here? Every single one of us is going to give a different account of that accident. Now, Bobby here is going to be most concerned about the ice cream truck. But others of us might be concerned about the safety of everything that's going on. It just depends on your background. And this is the same here for the gospel writers. Again, Matthew concerned about preaching to the Jews. Luke, from a doctor's perspective, gives more insight on, from, from those types of things. Mark, if you study the gospel of Mark, you find that Mark is very quick-witted in the sense that he's just straight to the point. He doesn't give a lot of details. He doesn't give a lot of superfluous things on the outside. He just wants you to know the most important things you need to know in order that you can understand what's happening. And so each one of these writers gives it from their perspective. 
And so Matthew, again, he's pointing out these things that he thinks are the most essential for a Jewish person to know and understand about what's taking place. So these women arrive to prepare the body of Jesus. They're sorrowful. They're weeping. Their hearts are broken. But something is getting ready to happen. An experience is getting ready to take place in these women's lives that they never could have dreamed would happen in their human sense of imagination. I want you to notice, firstly, the commotion. The commotion that occurs happens there in verses 2 through 4. It says, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now this earthquake occurred before the women had arrived here on the scene. Matthew is giving us a description, kind of really setting the stage for what the women are going to discover in the following verses. So sometime during the middle of the night, the ground began to quake, much as it had done at the crucifixion. Matthew Henry said that when Jesus died, the earth that received him shook for fear, and now that he arose, the earth that resigned him leaped for joy in his exaltation. The earthquake was a demonstration both at the cross and at the resurrection that something significant was happening. God was using the physical elements of this world to demonstrate that something amazing was taking place. That in Jesus' death, the sorrow of His death, the horror of His death, but also the obedience in His death, that Jesus was willing to come and lay down His own life, not because He was guilty of doing anything wrong, but because He was following through in obedience to His Father, that those who would put their faith and trust in Him might have their sins forgiven. And now here, as Jesus has risen from the dead, the earthquake happens, another symbolic sign that something significant has happened because Jesus has defeated the power of death, hell, and the grave. Sin could not hold Jesus down. Death could not hold Jesus down. The grave could not be His captor. And so as this earthquake happens, an angel of the Lord comes down, and we've seen the angels of of God come and to do His business in many other places. And so this angel comes down from heaven and rolls away the stone and sat upon it. Now, it's easy to read that passage and say, oh, okay, well, the angel came down, merely rolled the stone back, and then sat down and waited. But as Pastor Ben pointed out last week, this was no ordinary stone. This was not you walking out into your garden and, and finding a large rock in the, in the middle of the, of the path and just shoving it off to the side. This stone weighed thousands and thousands of pounds. It was carved out of a solid rock. It would take multiple men to move it into place from where it was uh, uh, offside of the door of the tomb into the place to where it stayed. And when it rolled into place, it actually sat down into a little pocket or a trench in order that it would make it more difficult to remove it than it was to even put it in. That was to stop grave robbers and all those other people from trying to get inside the tomb. And you remember that the high priest had requested that they could post guards there. So not only do you have the security of the rock itself, but then you have the guards who are stationed outside. And it says that when this earthquake happened, the angel of the Lord came back and merely rolled the stone away. And then he sat there. Spurgeon said that when the angel had rolled back the stone from the door, he sat upon it as to defy earth and hell to ever roll it back again. Now the question is, why did the angel roll away the stone? 
Now, maybe when you were growing up, maybe you heard somebody say, well, the angel rolled away the stone for Jesus to get out of the tomb. Well, Jesus didn't need a way out. The angel rolled the stone away from the door so that not so Jesus could get out, but so we could get in. So that we could see what was happening or what had happened on the inside. We know that something unusual because happened in, in, in Jesus' resurrection and, and how he was as a human being because he was still in his earthly body. He had not yet been glorified, but we know that something had transpired there in his human body because he was able to, in a sense, pass through physical objects in a way that us as human beings can't because he came out of the tomb. And then when he appeared to the, the disciples, he, he came through into the room where they were meeting without coming through the door. So there was something transformative about what had happened in the midst of this resurrection. So Jesus did not need a way to escape the tomb. He had already left, but the angel came down and opened it up so that the proof would be there. That everyone could look inside. Everyone could see what God had done in raising Jesus from the dead. And once the angel had done his work, the angel sat there where the stone was because his work was not yet done and just removing the stone so that others could see in. He yet had more to do. But in the midst of all this, it points out to us that these guards who were there shook for fear of him, it says, and became like dead men. Now, this is another amazing thought to consider as well. Because these are not just random men who had been pulled in off the street to guard the tomb. No doubt, the high priests, they wanted this tomb guarded, and they wanted it guarded securely because they were worried. They thought that the disciples were going to come to try to steal the body of Jesus and to take it away somewhere. So when they got permission to put guards outside the tomb, who do you think they were going to put there? They weren't going to put the lowest people on the totem pole. They weren't going to put the weakest of their soldiers. These are going to be the greatest soldiers that they had. These are going to be the strongest ones, the most noble ones, the one who had the most experience, the ones who were prepared for anything that might take place, the ones who were willing to fight even to the death in order to keep Jesus' disciples or whoever might come from stealing away the body of Jesus. This was how fearful the chief priests were of what was going to take place. But in the presence of this angel, it says that these hardened guards, these brave men, these soldiers of war shook for fear of him. They were cowering in their boots. They were just terrified of what was happening around them. And you can only imagine, right? It's, it's the middle of the night. And they're no doubt sitting around talking and, and carrying on as, as men were like to do as they're sitting there just waiting for maybe something to happen or maybe to not. And all of a sudden, this bright light begins to shine. And an earthquake begins to happen. And they're standing before them after this earthquake is this angel of the Lord who says, get out of the way, guys. And he rolls back the stone. And they've seen how heavy this is. They, they know how difficult it is. And then this angel just, just casually moves the stone out of the way. And these guys shake for fear. And it says that they fell as dead men. They literally passed out from fear. They were so terrified at what had happened that they just collapsed. They fell down in fear. So this commotion is taking place. They were terrified at what had happened. This moment, the terror of the moment, the terror of seeing these things had caused such great fear. And it made me think that in this moment, these these guards were getting a small perspective of what it will be like on the day when the Lord returns. 
and the terror that they felt in this moment of being in the presence of one so great as this angel and who's had such power to come and do these things will be nothing compared to those when Jesus returns who have not put their faith and trust in Christ and find themselves in the presence of one who's far more powerful than an angel with far greater ability to just not just roll the stone away, but to cast their very soul into hell. So a commotion took place. And this is all, again, happening before the women arrive on the scene. They're still on their way there. All of this is taking place. And Matthew is setting the parameters of what's happening so that when we arrive here in verse 5, that all of this has happened. The angel has come. The stone has been rolled away. The guards now are, are gone. Many, uh, most writers believe that after this moment, they just took off out of fear after they came to themselves. So not only do we see the commotion, I want you to notice in verse 5 and 6 that we see the comfort. It says that the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, just as He said, Come, See the place where he was laying. Now, Matthew doesn't point it out, but the other gospel writers do, that in this moment, the, the angel is inside of Jesus' tomb, and the women approach. And as they walk up, you can only imagine what's going through their hearts and minds, right? This, they're coming. They're expecting to walk up and to see soldiers positioned outside and to see the stone over the tomb. And no doubt they were questioning in their minds how they were even going to get inside. Would the soldiers help them to open the tomb so they could get inside and prepare the body of Jesus? How are they going to make all these things take place? And yet when they walk up, as they're some distance away and they look ahead, they see that there are no soldiers positioned outside. There's no torches that they would have been carrying to have light in the middle of the night. And they begin to come even closer. And they see that the stone has been rolled away. And the questions would begin to go into their mind, what's happened here? What, what, what has taken place? Well, Because they know that the disciples haven't stolen the body of Jesus, which would be the accusation, because they've been with the disciples. They know where the disciples are. The disciples are back uh, at the house. They're not out thieving bodies in the middle of the night. And perhaps they thought, well, maybe the soldiers have done something with them. So they get ever more closer to the tomb, and as they look inside, here sits this angel. And the angel tells him, do not be afraid. Why does he tell him that? Well, for the same reason that the soldiers shook in fear. You know, when we see angels on television, you know, you either kind of see one of two perspectives. You see these fat little naked babies with cute pudgy cheeks. Uh, or you see, you know, some other kind of televised appearance of, you know, there was a years and years ago, there was a show called Touched by an Angel, right? And there were these angels who would came around and, and did good things for people. But you know what we don't see in the scriptures? We don't see descriptions like that of angels in the scripture. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, they have to tell the person, don't be afraid. Which tells us there's something awe-inspiring and sometimes terror-inspiring about the presence of an angel. The glory of how they shine and the glory of how they're demonstrated because it says that his appearance was like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. So you can imagine just the, 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 the brightness and, and, the, and the, almost the awe-instructing fear that could be coming. So he looks at him and he says, don't be afraid. And in the original language, the, it's emphatic on the idea of saying you. You don't be afraid. He was okay with, this, with the soldiers being afraid. They should be afraid. He said, but you... 
you don't be afraid. He says, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He brings them this comfort in this moment. Because number one, he tells them to don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of what's happening here. You don't have to be terrified of me. You don't have to be worried about what's going on. He says, you don't even have to be afraid that the body of Jesus is missing. He says, I know who it is that you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And notice what he says to them. And think of the comfort in this moment that this would bring to him. Verse 6, he is not here for he has risen just as he said. Think about that. They're walking to the tomb to go anoint the body of Jesus. They're walking to the tomb sorrowful because they've lost their Messiah. They're walking to the tomb sorrowful and brokenhearted because the one whom they loved is gone. And they come up and, and then even more fear falls into their heart because the tomb is open. And they look inside and they see this angel. And this angel tells them, don't be afraid. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. Just as the soldiers were shocked by the appearance of the angel, no doubt the women were shocked by the message that the angel gave to them. Because it had to go through their mind. Can this really be true? Can it really be true that Jesus has risen from the dead? Can it really be true that that the Messiah has come back to life again? And notice that mixed in this comfort, there is some correction. Because he says, he is not here for he is risen just as he said. We've talked over and over again about how the disciples and the, the, even here the, the women disciples who struggled with understanding everything that Jesus was teaching them. When he would tell them, chapter 16 verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and what? And be raised up on the third day. Chapter 17, it says, And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they, will be, and they were deeply grieved. Chapter 20, verse 19, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock him and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So the angel here is just reminding them. It's like, Jesus told you this. Jesus told you this is what was going to happen. So there's this element of correction happening with a moment of comfort. It's like, had you remembered what Jesus had said, you would not had to have been sorrowful. You would not had to have been brokenhearted. You could have just been sitting there waiting. Okay, guys, listen, day number one has passed. Got two more days to go. Jesus is coming back. We've only got one more day. Tomorrow's the day. And then they could have all been standing outside there celebrating when Jesus opened up the tomb, walked out, and he was resurrected. But human nature is such that it was hard for the disciples, it was hard for Jesus' followers to overcome the human thoughts that they had because they had grown up in a Judaism that taught that the Messiah was going to be one who was victorious in in His first coming. That He was going to set up a kingdom and take back Jerusalem from the Romans and do all these things to carry His people and to fight wars and battles. 
And even though Jesus had taught his disciples over and over again that that wasn't what his intention to do, they still struggled with believing that. They still struggled with thinking that and, 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 and hoping for those things. We find it all the way even to the very end that the disciples were still convinced this was what was going to happen. So when Jesus died on the cross, they were like, where did we go wrong? Even though over and over Jesus had taught them the truth of who he was and what he was going to do. But Jesus has risen. The angel tells them, He is risen just as He said. He is risen just as He said. And brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that Jesus always keeps His promises? He said, I'm going to be crucified, dead and buried, and rise on the third day. And He did just that. But we see not only the comfort here, I want you to notice the command. Look at the end of verse 6 into verse 7. He says, come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now we see the women, they're standing here peering into the tomb. They're seeing this angel. This angel is speaking to them. And the angel's first command to them is to come. It's it's an invitation And he's inviting them to to step into the tomb. Now, what would be the reason that they need an invitation to come in? Why Why would he need to say this? Well, because there's really a lot of things that could have been happening here in their minds at the moment. Number one, there's danger. It's early in the morning. They're in a graveyard. They knew that the soldiers were there. Perhaps the soldiers could be back at any moment. They didn't know where they had gone. They just knew when they arrived that they weren't there. They could have been concerned about what might happen if the soldiers did arrive back because, again, the high priests had accused the disciples of plotting to steal the body of Jesus, and perhaps if they were caught there when, they, uh, when the soldiers returned, perhaps they could be arrested and charged with it. Or perhaps they were afraid to step in because they said something sacred has happened here. This is holy ground, and we don't dare to tread to the inside of this tomb where something This marvelous has happened. But the angel gives him an invitation. He says, you've got to come. You can't be on the outside. You've got to come inside to see what has happened. You've got to come. You've got to make the step of faith to walk inside. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for every person in this room today. The command that the angel gave to the women is the same command that God gives to every person. You must come. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you may be here this morning and you say, well, you know, I'll, I'll follow Jesus when it's more convenient for me. You know, I can't, I can't come right now because I have obligations to my family or to my job. If I, if I come to Christ now, the, then I may lose my recognition in my family or I may lose my position of authority or prestige. There are many number or a myriad of reasons than the women could have given those two when the angel said come, but they didn't. They received the invitation. And then the angel said, see. He said, see the place where he was lying. Can you imagine this moment? These women knew where Jesus' body had laid. They had helped put him there. 
They had seen the body wrapped in the linen, this, this really mummified, this mummy-looking body wrapped in all of these white linens. They're laid upon the stone inside the tomb. The last vision they had of Jesus, the last picture they had of him was looking into the tomb, seeing his dead body laying on the stone as the stone closed over the door and the darkness overtook the tomb. And now here they are, just a few days later, and light shining into the tomb from the outside, light shining from this angel, the whole place lit up in glorious splendor like never before. And as they look, there they see the stone and the grave clothes that Jesus had been in. But nobody. There is no body laying on the stone. And the angel invites them in to see it. He doesn't just tell them about it on the outside. He says, you've got to come and you've got to see this for yourself. You've got to know that he is really risen. You've got to know that he is really alive. And what what does this mean for us? What does this mean for them? What does it mean for all of human Christianity? It means that every single thing that God has told us through his word is true. There's not a single bit of falsehood that are found in the Scriptures because all of this, all of the New Testament teaching, all of the Old Testament teaching was built upon the premise of God sending His Son to come and to die for sinful men. All of the Old Testament was pointing to the forward to the fact, saying Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming. God is doing all of this because one day He's sending a Savior. God is doing all of this because one day the Redeemer will come. And the New Testament is saying He is here. He has arrived. He's on the scene. And Jesus is resurrected. And then all the apostles and the New Testament writers are pointing back and saying, See, He was true. See, He was the Son of God. See, He has conquered sin, death, and the grave. You can put your trust in Him. It means that Christ has died for sinners and that God has received His sacrifice. Spurgeon, when he preached on this verse, he pointed out five things that we can see Inside the tomb of Jesus, number one, we can see the condescension of Christ. That Jesus was willing to come and to take on human flesh. To walk amongst sinful men. To experience all that we experience yet without sin. He was willing to humble himself and even yet go to the cross and to die for sinners. He said, secondly, inside the tomb we can see the horror of our own sin. That put Jesus to death on the cross. It was because of our sin that Jesus had to suffer and die. It was because of our sin that He had to bear the weight and the wrath of God upon His own body. He said, thirdly, that we can see inside the tomb that we too will die. Death waits for no man. It comes for all of us. None of us in this room, unless the Lord Jesus returns while we are alive, none of us in this room will escape death. It's something we all must face. Fourthly, he said, we can see in the tomb that Jesus is not there. That the tomb is empty. That He has risen from the dead. And he says, because of that, fifthly, we shall also rise. Because Jesus has defeated the power of death in the grave, that means it has no power over us. One day, every single one of us will die. But that is not the end. It's just a part of the glorious new beginning. Because Jesus has defeated death, because He has been raised from the dead, we too also shall rise to meet the Lord in the sky. We shall go to be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ after our death. We have defeated death as well. So the angel tells them to come. He tells them to see. Thirdly, I want you to notice he tells them 
to go and to go quickly. Verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. This message, this message of Jesus' resurrection must be told and it must be told without delay. This is, this is something important. This is not just the fact that, that something significant is had. This is something far above significance. This is far something far above anything that these women have ever grasped in their lives. There is no news story, no tale that they've ever been told that it was greater than what this angel was telling them this in this moment. That Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. That He is alive. And He says, go. Go without delay. Do not Take your time. Spurgeon says the king's business requires haste. That means we can't be slow about what God has called us to do. If we are truly understanding of what the angel is telling to us here, then we should be desirous to tell as many people as we can, as fast as we can, every day that we can. Now, many of you know that I work during the week at a motorcycle museum. And one of the interesting things that I've found in in working in that world is how quickly news spreads about certain things. And I'm sure it's true in many different professions, but I'm just speaking from one that I'm more familiar with. We work with a lot of old motorcycles. And so when somebody finds a really old motorcycle one that's significant historically, one that maybe there's only a few of them ever made, or maybe one that nobody knew existed, and it's, it's, they, they find one for the first time. You know how long it takes for that news to spread? It doesn't take long at all. I mean, the phones start ringing off the hook. Text messages start popping in. Facebook messages, Instagram. It's just instantly everywhere in a moment because every, even people who, who don't really have, they, they're not the one with the bike. They're not the one purchasing the bike. But they're like, listen, you've got to believe what's happened to so-and-so. You can't believe they found this machine. They can't believe that they, this thing was discovered. And so everybody is spreading the news. And brothers and sisters, this is how it should be with the gospel. The gospel is far more glorious than finding a car or finding a motorcycle or finding a million dollars laying out in your front yard. And if any of those things happen, you would call people and you would tell them that you're never going to believe what happened to me. But are we the same way with the gospel? Are we the same way with the good news of Jesus Christ? Are we the same way that the fact that we believe, if we genuinely believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, if we genuinely believe that our sins have been forgiven, if we genuinely believe that because of that, that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ and we have eternal life with Him, that's far greater than anything this world has to offer. But are we as excited about telling that to other people as we are about when those smaller insignificant things happen? This angel gave them a command. He says to come, he says to see, and he says to go. But then he gives them one other thing. He says not just to go, but to go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you in Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you, Jesus had told his disciples that he would see them again. He had promised them that that's where they would meet again. But he says, go and tell them. This is the greatest news in the world. Jesus chose these women here at the tomb. They were the ones who were present. They were the ones who had been there in the last moments. And Jesus, we we don't know why God chose to do this through the women. There's no any specific things. One commentator just said, 
Because they were the ones who were there. They are the ones who had showed back up at the tomb. They were the ones who, out of their commitment to him, had showed back up there. And so God, because of their commitment to Jesus and because of their willingness to be there, God chose them and gave them this glorious opportunity to be the ones to first come back and to tell the others about what had taken place. So he says, come, come see for yourselves. Come see what Christ has done. He has risen from the dead. And then go and tell the disciples. You know, until studying this passage this week, whenever I thought of Matthew chapter 28, I always thought about the end of Matthew 28. Because the end of Matthew chapter 28 is where we find the Great Commission, where Jesus commands His disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the... The Great Commission, it's the passage of missions and evangelism. It's the passage we always look to 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 challenge people to go out and to share their faith. But never before had I realized that here in these verses, we also see a great commissioning. Because he says, come. Come know the truth of who Jesus is. See for yourself. Because, brothers and sisters, you can't bank your faith on the faith of another. You can't bank your faith because your parents were Christians that you are a Christian. You can't just say, well, my granddad was a pastor, and so I've always grown up in church, so that means that I'm a Christian as well. It doesn't work that way. Faith is a personal faith. You have to come and see for yourself who Jesus is. And you have to trust in Him, and follow Him, and serve Him. And then we are to go and to tell the good news of what Christ has done. We see here the command. I want you to notice, fourthly, the compliance. Look at verse 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. It says they left the tomb quickly. They didn't hang around. I don't know about you, but I think there could have been a great temptation here for these women. To say, well, let's just stay here for a little while longer. You know, something great has happened here, right? I mean, there's an angel of the Lord who's present here with us. Let's let's just bask in the glory of this moment for just a little while longer. Let's just wait and see what, what may happen next. No. They followed through with obedience. And they departed quickly because the angel of the Lord said, Come, see, go, and tell. And do it quickly. And these women responded in complete obedience. They were willing to do the simple thing, right? It's not a hard thing to get up and go. You just got to be willing to get up and actually go. These women were willing to do and be obedient to what God had called them to do. It, because if they didn't ask, we'll say, well, wait a minute. Uh, can't we have some a little bit greater thing to do? Right? Maybe can't we have a little more authority or responsibility? Maybe can't we have a little more depth of our knowledge or understanding here? And then we'll go back and share not just the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Maybe could you give us the details of how God raises somebody from the dead? And then we'll go back and do that. They were willing to be faithful and obedient with the simple things. Brother Nate and I this week were talking about some things in theology and and. Together we came up with this phrase that a lot of times Christians struggle with having strong heads and weak arms. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times Christians 
We have a head full of knowledge. We know theology. We know the truth. We know what the scriptures say. But when it comes to actually putting it into practice and doing what we're supposed to do, they don't do it. They've got a strong head. They've got everybody, but their arms are weak. They're not actually putting feet to faith. One of the things that I've seen over my years in ministry is that oftentimes people want to do things, they want to do great things for God, but they don't want to do small things for God. They want to be the missionary who goes and sees hundreds of people put their faith and trust in Christ. But they don't want to be the guy in their own town that just sits on a street corner and shares the gospel faithfully with one person a day and never sees anybody vocally profess faith in Christ, but he just does it because he's being obedient to the Holy Spirit. They want to be the pastor of the largest church in town, but they don't want to have to move to the middle of nowhere where they know nobody and pastor a small congregation faithfully all of their lives, just marrying them and burying them and shepherding them in the faith. These women here did not have strong heads and weak arms. These women had a knowledge of joy in their heads, but they were willing to do what they were told to do without delay. And may we be the same. Brothers and sisters, let's not delay in doing what God has called us to do. There's not a single person in this room this morning that you do not know what God has called you to do. You may not know the specifics about certain things in your life. You may be at a place where you're looking for a job or searching for a job or a career, and you may not know what door is going to open. But you know what the Lord has told us to do? He says, trust in me, and I'll handle those situations. He says, you share with the good others the good news of Jesus. You go and you make disciples. And if we're faithful to do that, then God handles the other things. We don't have to be fearful and worry about those things if we're being faithful to do what God has called us to do. And every single one of us in this room this morning are called to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether that's if you're a, a man and you're called to preach and you stand in a pulpit or if you're just out on the street corner somewhere, or if you're in the line at the grocery store and somebody walks up to you. We're called to be obedient. Now notice what happens. It says they departed quickly. And it says here there's a seeming contradiction because it says they departed quickly with fear and great joy. Now how can you have fear and great joy all at the same time? Well, there was this fear of, of really not knowing what has happened here still trying to wrap their minds around everything that they've experienced, but the joy outweighs the fear because it doesn't say that they had great fear and joy. It says they had fear and great joy because of the good news they believed what the angel had told them was true, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so then it says that they ran to report. These women did not slow down. They took off from the tomb and they ran back to share the truth had what had happened. A command had been given and obedience was the only proper response. When the angel said, go quickly, they did. Now, the final thing I want you to notice here in this passage is the confirmation. Now, before we look at these verses, it's important for us to understand a little bit of the timeline of what has happened. And I didn't mention it earlier because it applies more here. The scripture tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. We mentioned the other women who were there with them as they got there, about four or five women. And the other gospel writers tell us that as the ladies made it to the tomb and they saw that something was amiss, before they saw the angel, before they heard the good news, they saw that something was amiss because the soldiers were not standing guard and the tomb was open. 
Mary Magdalene at that moment turned and went back to get Peter and John. And so when these women meet this angel and hear the good news, Mary Magdalene is not there because she has gone to get Peter and John. And when she gets back to get Peter and John, remember the Scripture tells us that Peter and John take off running? And they take off running? And as they're taking off running to get to the tomb, this encounter here with the angel is happening with the other ladies. And somewhere in the midst of these two moments, when these ladies take off and Peter and John are running to the tomb, they pass each other somewhere in the night. And these ladies go back to tell the other apostles what had happened. Peter and John make it to the tomb. And they see that Jesus is not there. And so then they turn back to go. And by that time, Mary has made it to the tomb. And she's looking around and she's weeping. And then Jesus appears to her first and comforts her. And then as Mary goes back, Mary Magdalene goes back, then it is at this moment that we come to this point here in verse 9 when Jesus meets the other women. Now, we don't know the distances of where they were, but again, what has happened here, the women come, Mary Magdalene goes back, she gets Peter and John. The other women take off to come back. Peter and John and Mary arrive at the tomb. Jesus encounters Mary Magdalene, and then he encounters these other women, as we will see here in verses 9 and 10. And what we see here is the confirmation. The confirmation, look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The word that Jesus uses here when he says, greets them, it's the word hail or hello. And really, it, it carries the connotation of being rejoiceful. So again, you can imagine what's happening in this moment because these women don't know that Mary Magdalene has already seen Jesus in the flesh. They don't know what's going on. They just know what the angels told them and they're just trying to be obedient and they're going back to, to, to tell the other disciples what has happened. And here Jesus appears to them and he just gives them this common greeting that just means really hello, but in a sense rejoice of like, I'm here. All your fears have passed away. All these things are gone. You no longer have to be afraid. Spurgeon pointed out the fact that these ladies met the Master in the midst of their obedience. And he said, saints running in the way of obedience are likely to be met by Jesus. Some Christians travel to heaven so slowly that they're overtaken by follies or by faults by slumber or by Satan, but he who is Christ's running footman shall meet his master while he is speeding on his way. This goes back to what we've already said, that if we can't be faithful in the small things, God will not grant us the opportunity to be a part of the big things. If we can't be willing to do the menial tasks of this world for the glory of God, why should we expect God to ask us to do glorious things for his kingdom? These, angel, these ladies met, um, met Jesus on the way in the midst of their obedience, and he greets them and tells them to rejoice. And notice what he says. He repeats the words of the angel, do not be afraid. Because there's this moment here, again, that they were probably awestruck and thinking, well, perhaps this is, maybe this could be a ghost. Maybe something else is going on here. But they fall down and they worship him. It says they took hold of his feet. It's just the idea of the significance that they're laying down prostrate on the ground just in awe and glory of him because Jesus is still in a human body, but now they know fully and understand that he truly is the Son of God. And the only response in this moment was to fall down on their face and to worship him. 
to consider in their minds everything that he had taught them, everything that he had promised them, now they knew for certain was true. So he met them, they worshipped him, and he encouraged them because he tells them, do not be afraid. And notice what he says in verse 10. He says, go and take word to my brethren. He doesn't just call them his disciples there. He calls them my brethren. Which really points to a couple of things. Number one, that the church truly is a family. That we're not just people who are commonly gathered here, but we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. But it also speaks to the fact that now as Christians, because of what Jesus has done, that we are joint heirs with the King. That we are His brothers and sisters. We're not just random people that have been pulled in off the streets, but we are truly the brothers and sisters of Christ. He tells them to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus is going to separate out with his disciples for a while to meet with them. Back to Galilee, where he had performed the majority of his miracles, done the bulk of his ministry. He's going to gather there, away from the crowds of the city, there in a place where he can be more isolated together, to give them the great promises that he needs to give them to prepare them for the work of the days and the years and the millennia ahead. Brothers and sisters, this is... The faith of Christianity. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we might as well pack our bags, close the building, sell the property, go home, buy a bass boat, and just fish on Sunday morning. Because there's no purpose to be here. But glory be to God, that is not the case. Glory be to God that Jesus has risen from the dead. And because of His resurrection, we have a greater hope than anything this world has to offer. The world tells us to trust in the government, but you know what? The government will fail you. The world tells us to trust in money, but you know what? Money will fail you. The world tells us to trust in fame, in sex, in drugs, in alcohol, all of these things. They will take away your problems and give you the hope that you think that you're looking for. But every single one of those things will fail you. The things that will not fail you is a trust in Jesus Christ. The thing that will not fail you is hope in the resurrection of Jesus because He has brought a promise to us that cannot be taken away. And so to us this morning as believers in Christ, as we gather here this morning, what are we to do? Number one, let's celebrate the resurrection as often as we can. Now this doesn't mean that we hang around at the empty tomb all the time. You know, there's an interesting reason that some people will, when they talk about visiting places in, in Jerusalem and, and in the Holy Land, some people don't like the idea of going to certain places like the tomb of Jesus. And not because there's anything inherently wrong with it, but it's because sometimes people get an unhealthy fixation on it, right? And the empty tomb of Jesus is not there for us to make an idol out of. The empty tomb of Jesus is not there to say, well, we're just going to hang around here at the empty tomb and see what happens. The empty tomb is there to empower us to leave the tomb and to go and do what God has called us to do. So as Christians, we should rejoice and celebrate in the fact that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And in fact, every Sunday morning, that's what we do when we come to the table. We're remembering Christ's death, burial, and His resurrection every time we come to the Lord's table in communion on Sunday morning. So we remember what Christ has done. But then secondly, let us do as the angel told the women here. Let us not come and just see, but let us go 
and tell. That we may share the good news with as many people as possible as often as we can. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions that we find here. We thank you for your grace that is so prevalent in our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that has been made available to us through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, help us to rejoice in the truth of what Christ has done. But Father, help us also to live our lives in complete obedience to you. Lord, we don't just think about what Christ has done, but we let that knowledge empower us to be obedient, to tell others about you. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's never put their trust in Christ, that this knowledge this morning of the certainty, of the sure and certain fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that the Holy Spirit will move upon their hearts and that they will put their trust in you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.